Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. There was a historic day on Thursday as Congress opened the impeachment trial of President Trump. House Democrats read the formal charges and all 100 senators were sworn in as jurors. And just before all of this happened, the Government Accountability Office released a report saying that the administration's Office of Management and Budget violated the law when they withheld military aid to Ukraine. It was quite a bombshell that happened right at the start of the impeachment trial. For more on this story, we spoke to Caitlin Emma. She's a reporter for Politico to tell us all about the details of the GAO report. It was really an explosive legal opinion that the Government Accountability Office released this morning. And and like you said, it was just before the Senate really got its impeachment trial sort of underway, getting things kind of started in the upper chamber. That's going to resume next week. But the release of this legal opinion from the Government Accountability Office, or the GAO, as people like to call it, is really underscores how quickly this case is unfolding against the president and really gets to the heart of what senators will be considering, which is, did President Donald Trump freeze this critical aid to Ukraine over the summer in order to pressure the country to investigate his political rivals, sort of using that as leverage? And what the GAO found in its report was that that action unequivocally violated federal budget law. So that really undercuts the Trump administration's argument this whole entire time that, you know, freezing this critical foreign aid was well within his executive authority to do that. And GAO, which is sort of this, you know, the supreme independent auditing agency of the federal government said, no, that is not the case. You broke the law when you made that move. And what is the timeline? How does the GAO say that this happened? Because this went through the OMB. They kind of imply that maybe the president might have directed this, but how did this play out in real time? Well, that is something that House impeachment investigators have been trying to suss out for months. It's really trying to get a firm handle on the timeline of what happened and when it happened. And it's worth noting in GAO's legal opinion today that essentially the agency said that the Trump administration didn't completely comply with GAO's investigation, which GAO said was troubling. But In any case, a number of administration officials told House impeachment investigators last year that the directive to freeze the critical aid to Ukraine was given in July and that funding was not released until September. Federal agencies, federal officials, many people never got a reason for why the administration was holding up the funding. And the timeline is relevant because the funds were set to expire on September 30th, which is the end of the fiscal year. And even though the administration released some of the funds, millions of dollars never um, made their way to Ukraine by that deadline. So that all sort of plays into this GAO legal finding that you know, the president did, in fact, break the law when he decided to hold up funds that were appropriated by Congress in order to get across what appears to be political priorities, political investigations, et cetera. And the interesting thing is that really the only recourse for the GAO for a violation like this is to sue the administration to end up releasing the funds. 
but that's already happened. So really nothing is going to happen on that front. It just kind of sheds more light on the legality of it. You know, the president for a long time had been saying, oh, it's perfectly within my right to do it if I want to. Not so much. If the funds were appropriated by Congress, then it has to be released. This finding by GAO, this was released just before the Senate was really kicking off its impeachment trial. So sort of jolting the happenings on Capitol Hill today. It was really like a bombshell finding from this federal auditing agency that is so well respected in Congress. So the fact that this happens just as the impeachment trial is sort of getting underway in the upper chamber, I mean, you would think that it could potentially be used as sort of like fuel for lawmakers who are about to embark on this trial. And certainly Democrats are saying, you know, GAO's legal opinion really underscores the need for our ability to call witnesses in the Senate impeachment trial. And this is something that we need to be acting on, need to be considering where Republicans today were unfazed by GAO's legal finding. And they've been sort of unfazed by uh, anything that really House investigators have dug up on the president. Most of them who I spoke to today said, okay, yeah, that's what GAO says. I don't (laughs) think it really moves the needle. And some conceded that, yeah, you know, maybe this is a bit of a stretch when it comes to executive authority, but I don't think it will ultimately hurt the president. I don't see why it changes the calculus when it comes to impeachment. And that's been the whole big question. You know, will there be new evidence allowed into this? Will there be witnesses called? There's news about the former associate of Rudy Giuliani, Lev Parnas, basically saying that the president knew all the stuff that was going on and was directing this and kind of implicating him there. And who knows if any of this stuff will be even considered. I guess the Senate trial really gets started on Tuesday. So we'll find out more then and whatnot. But for now, this report basically said that it was an illegal act to withhold that military aid. Caitlin Emma, reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Another big political story this week. The last Democratic debate before the Iowa caucuses was on Tuesday, and everyone was waiting for fireworks between Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren. This was over comments that he allegedly made saying a woman could not win the presidency. When the question did come up on stage, the candidates did play nice. There was a tense moment, however, after the debate where Elizabeth Warren confronted Bernie Sanders and told him, I think you just called me a liar on national TV. For more on this story, we spoke to Emily Glazer, politics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. The most interesting, actually, exchange between the two of those candidates happened after the debate was over. So I'm going to start there first. Elizabeth Warren refused Bernie Sanders' handshake. It was all caught on TV. This is at the end when the candidates usually kind of walk up and down the stage and kind of exchange pleasantries. And that was just not going to happen between the two of them. So after Ms. Warren refused the handshake, there was this kind of like tense exchange between the two of them. I think you called me a liar on national TV. Let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion? We'll have that Anytime. discussion. You called me. You told me. All right, let's not do it. I'm, now. I don't want to get in the middle of it. I just want to say hi, Bernie. Yeah, good. Okay. Interestingly, Tom Steyer, for part of that, was just standing in between the right. two of them, I, I, <laughs> waiting it, to shake it, hands. It yeah. was funny because he couldn't tell if he was coming to shake their hands or if he like heard them kind of getting a little tense and he wanted to kind of maybe referee or something. He just looked out of place right there while they were yeah, saying Yeah, I think he was trying said. to like say thank you and good night, but they were pretty locked in on each other. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen some reporting today that basically, as you said, Elizabeth Warren has said that Bernie Sanders told her in this 2018 dinner that a now been very publicized that 
he did not think a woman could win. And Mr. Sanders, on the other hand, has said that is ludicrous and he never said that. And he reiterated that during the debate. Also interesting, though, in that moment, they did keep it pretty friendly all night. But Ms. Warren did say, look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. The only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women, Amy and me. And so that was definitely one of the big lines of the evening where she kind of gave it to the four other male candidates. And clearly someone on her team had done a lot of research there for her to say that line. They did play nice during the debate, even though Elizabeth Warren said, yes, Bernie Sanders did say that to me. How do you think it came across maybe to the vote? Like, was it a satisfactory answer from Senator Sanders? You know, a lot of this gets into that electability question. Can a woman run for president? And what we've seen from a a bunch of media reports today is that for a number of voters, it actually didn't really change their opinion either way on the candidate. There definitely was some stuff trending on Twitter, a Never Warren hashtag, but it turned out it seemed like a lot of that was from people saying not to use the hashtag. So we don't want to take in too much of what the media might be spreading versus your average voter in Iowa, the first early nominating contest in the whole round of primaries and caucuses that are about to start up next month. So I don't think we should read into it too much for now. It sounds like it didn't really do too much and that they both have their very loyal supporter bases. And it isn't really clear if either of them broke out from that. I think on top of all of it, there's this concern that infighting will be really hurtful to the party because Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign was described by some as divisive. And there have been some Democratic critics that are concerned that his supporters didn't turn out for Hillary Clinton and worried about what could happen if he is not the nominee. So I think overall, there's a big question of whether the infighting should really stop and for Democrats, at least, that it could help President Trump win again, as opposed to help either of the Democratic candidates. How did the candidates fare when they spoke about foreign policy and the presence of troops in the Middle East? That was really the way that the debate was kicked off and with good reason. I think that's what a lot of people are very curious about after President Trump decided to authorize an airstrike that resulted in the death of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani and that reignited this whole debate over America's military footprint in the Middle East and the candidates were almost unanimous in arguing for a diminished U.S. military presence in the region but they really differed sharply on a timeline for withdrawing troops. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were saying that the U.S. should pull out of the Middle East entirely, whereas former Vice President Joe Biden and Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, two of the more moderate Democrats, disagreed, and they really thought that it was impossible to remove all troops from the Middle East. Meanwhile, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who is the only veteran that was up on the stage, a veteran of the Afghanistan war, said that he favored taking a more limited approach and called for more military action to be authorized by Congress. So that dominated the first at least 30 minutes or so of the debate, and for the right reasons, that's all happening in real time. And there are a lot of questions about foreign policy and what kind of decisions that candidates would make that came up far more than other debates. You mentioned Senator Amy Klobuchar. She had this moment where, you know, everybody's talking about Medicare for all, (laughs) things like that. And she said, hey, this debate isn't real at all. There's really not a broad support for something like this. Some people want a public option. This is probably the moderate stance on how to tackle Healthcare, But I thought that was a good moment for her to kind of reset it. As I said, she is the moderate. So to really position herself that way. 
this debate isn't real. That's what she said. Yeah. And like you mentioned, she's saying that there's so many members of Congress and Democratic governors who don't support Medicare for all. And that's the plan coined by Bernie Sanders and very similar to Elizabeth Warren's plan. And like you mentioned, that Senator Klobuchar said that a public option should be pursued in addition to coverage for mental health, disabilities, and long-term care insurance. So she really brought those other aspects into the fold. And look, health care has come up in pretty much every debate. It's an area where the candidates do largely disagree. It's one of the biggest issues for the American public. And it was expected to come up because Mr. Trump tweeted this week that he had saved pre-existing conditions. And basically, the Trump administration has backed a lawsuit that would invalidate the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act, under the Obama administration, bars insurers from denying people health coverage because of past and current medical issues. So the Trump administration is basically also arguing against having the Supreme Court fast-track consideration of that lawsuit. So the court may not decide until after the 2020 presidential election. But either way, the issue became front and center yet again. In the end, Emily, who do you think came out on top and positioned themselves the best ahead of the Iowa caucuses? To me, it didn't seem that there was a candidate that absolutely outshone everyone else. However, many could argue that Joe Biden did a steady job and a stable job during the debate, and he's already slightly ahead in the polls, and that this debate could have helped him further, especially with the infighting from Senators Sanders and Warren. And even though Senator Klobuchar had a couple of great moments, it didn't seem like it was enough to overpower anybody else. Emily Glazer, politics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And an interesting story that started at the beginning of the week. The fight for privacy is underway again between Apple and the FBI. After a December 6th shooting at a naval base in Pensacola, Florida, was deemed an act of terrorism, Attorney General Bill Barr said that Apple wasn't doing enough to help unlock the shooter's two phones. Apple maintains that breaking encryption on one phone could endanger the privacy of all iPhone users. So they refused to help, although they did release a lot of other data to the FBI. For more on this story, we spoke to Rosie Perper, global reporter for Business Insider. So the case from San Bernardino, that happened in 2015. So essentially what happened was Apple created an update to its iOS software. And basically there were certain data on the phone that was no longer able to be accessed by law enforcement. And so you needed a passcode in order to get certain things like text messages and photos That's obviously of importance to law enforcement when they're dealing with a shooting case or a terrorism case. And so after San Bernardino, they were able to get a hold of the shooter's iPhone. But unfortunately, they couldn't access the data that they were looking for because it was under uh, passcode encryption. So at first, they tried to crack it themselves, but the NSA wasn't able to. And so they went directly to Apple to ask them for help. But Apple said that creating any sort of hacking software would essentially put the privacy and security of all of its customers at risk. Because once you have that software available, what is that software is used for in the future could potentially put more of their customers at risk. And Apple really values privacy and user privacy of its customers. So it kind of refused to do that for the FBI, which kind of set this whole feud between the FBI and Apple in motion. Yeah, and at the time, the FBI sued Apple But while all that was happening, the FBI was able to contract with a third party to unlock the iPhone there. Uh, I think later on, Senator Dianne Feinstein from California said that the government paid $900,000 to this third party to be able to unlock that phone. 
And then they ended up dropping the lawsuit against Apple. So it was kind of like a stalemate. The FBI got what they wanted, so they didn't have to proceed with this lawsuit. So now we're kind of at it again. The uh, Attorney General William Barr accused Apple of not really doing enough to help. And there's two phones in question here now that they are trying to open up. And again, the same argument from Apple. They said, we can't do this because if we create a backdoor, this leaves it open to any bad actor to do this to other iPhones. Obviously, in the years since the San Bernardino shooting, Apple's been able to progress its security software even further. So Apple basically said that it's providing the FBI with as much information as it can. But there's just still certain information that it says if it provides to the FBI, that would set a precedent. And I think Apple's standing really firm on this issue. I think whether there's some earnesty behind it or whether or not it's Apple trying to save face, they're really standing firm about not compromising the security of its users. So what's going to happen is unclear at this point. Apple is in a really complicated spot right now because it's not just Apple fighting against the Department of Justice over something like this. They have to contend with a bunch of foreign governments. I think Australia passed the law saying they can Mm -hmm. compel tech companies to undermine their data security. India has something. The UK has something. So If Apple does this for the Department of Justice, for the FBI, then they have to kind of do it for all these other countries. Or what's worse for a big company like Apple that I don't think they want, they would have to stop operating in these countries. So it's just a really complicated spot. And as you mentioned, the privacy of their customers is really high on their list. It just seems like they can't do this. That's kind of the argument that a lot of these rights groups have mentioned in, in now with the Pensacola shooting case. The American Civil Liberties Union, they defended Apple and they basically said that if Apple was to create this sort of backdoor software, other governments, other authoritarian governments might be able to access similar software and what they would use that software for, that would be of concern in the future. So that's something that they're really defending is this idea that if this software is created at all, who gets a hold of it and what it's used for in the future, it's just basically a slippery slope. And Apple hasn't closed off the FBI completely. They say they won't create this backdoor for the access to the iPhones but they are giving them a bunch of other stuff, uh, you know, iCloud data and some other stuff too, right? There is certain data that is, if you've got your iCloud set up to your iPhone, it can get automatically updated and it can get uh, stored in the iCloud. But that information, according to the FBI, just isn't enough. And what they have, there are certain gaps of information that they don't have. And so they really want to see who the Pensacola shooter was working with and whether he had ties to any sort of major terrorist groups. That sort of information is hard to discern from just the information that they have. But at the same time, Apple is cooperating and Apple thinks that it's doing its part. So we're back at this clash between Apple and the FBI in terms of getting access to the data that the FBI thinks it needs. And there's a couple of other little complications. I think in this case, in the Pensacola case, the shooter either shot one of the phones or tried to damage the phones. So there's a question of like, you know, why can't the FBI just go through another third party and they can create something to get into the phone? But a lot of people suspect maybe there was too much physical damage on the phones and maybe that's why they need Apple's help on this. So there's still a lot of questions in play and there's no actual lawsuit or anything happening this time just yet, right? Uh, No, not at the moment. The FBI is preparing for what it's going to do in the future. But at this point, they're looking at the same kind of scenario that they were put in back in 2015 and 2016. So it's unclear exactly what's going to happen in the future. I know Trump's lashed out at Apple recently. And what's going to happen next, I guess, will kind of mirror what happened in the San Bernardino case. So we'll see. 
Rosie Perper, global reporter at Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.